Welcome to another episode of the Comfort Monk Podcast. Eddie took the lead on this one. He had a comedian, Derek Sheen, on the show, and they and they chatted a bit. How did it go, Eddie? It was really fun. Uh, we talked for a long time. Yeah? Um, yeah, we got along really well. Uh, not surprisingly, he was making me laugh the whole time. Yeah. Uh, but we got into some real stuff. Uh, you know, I think, you know, part of being a comedian is having to respond to what's going on around you. Uh, and so we had a chance to talk about some of the, the nationwide protests against police brutality, some of the economic issues that people are facing. Um, and as always, he had hilarious but also disturbingly true and sincere uh, reflections on all that stuff. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I, I do feel like as much as... Uh, I enjoy just going into people's musical journeys or creative journeys. Uh, sometimes it is less of the conversation than maybe it should be some of the insane shit that's going on right now. So uh, I'm glad you guys were able to touch on that. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear how that conversation went. We've been we've been wanting to get a bit more of a comedy presence on the show, um, we've had a few feelers out here and there with different comedians, but this is the first one we booked on the show, so it's a it's a milestone. Hopefully, it will be the first of many. Um, but yeah, guys, thanks for listening as always. Um, you know, one thing we don't do enough is is reach out to these listeners that we have to ask for you know advice on on guests. But please, uh, you know, if anybody who's listening has a great idea about who we might should talk to, please feel free to reach out. We, we're always open to suggestions. But uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening. And, uh, yeah, write and review, subscribe, all that jazz. Uh, but mostly just thank you so much for listening. And we'll, yeah. we'll jump into it. And also uh, you should rent the new uh, – I say the word rent. What I mean is buy a digital copy of the new uh, – Derek Sheen stand-up special. It's yeah. called uh, Macho Caballero. I got a copy of it. It is hilarious. Yeah, where all is it available? Uh, I bought it through Vimeo. Okay. Um, but it's also out on vinyl and digital audio and I think CD. Nice. Yeah, support Derek in any way you can. And thanks again for coming on the show, Derek. But All right, guys, we're going to jump to it. Thanks so much. competing news stations out here and one of them is owned by sinclair which is a really hard right uh uh, fundamentalist broadcasting company and so there you know when you when you turn it on to sinclair just to see like oh i wonder what the propaganda network's saying it's a completely different picture than what you're getting from every major news source and locally between them and the other news it was amazing to watch uh one station's uh anchor came on Sunday night and was like, hey, you know what? Looting's going to happen. Property damage is going to happen downtown. Uh, that's the price that we need to pay to make sure that we make these changes. You have a lot of angry black people 
who feel like they haven't been heard. And the only way they're going to be heard is to destroy rich people's things. It's the only way they're going to get attention and it's going to, their voice is going to be heard. That's where we're at. So you know what? Don't worry about that stuff. It's all replaceable. And then the other network was like, Antifa thugs, they're in town. <laughs> they're busting in. They're flying them in. Antifa, George Soros heads Antifa, and he's writing checks to everybody. And I'm like, ah, okay. Yeah, it's it's so racist. Not just like the George Soros stuff, which is obviously super anti-Semitic. Super anti-Semitic, yeah. Um, but the whole thing where it's like, first of all, all the protests around the country have been super multiracial. You know, white people, black people, brown people. Um, and having that narrative of, oh, it's like white anarchists coming in and causing shit or whatever really just <sighs> takes away any power because it's not just white people, it's white and black people. And right. everybody's mad and everybody is justifiably mad. And it's a way to take that that righteous anger away from black people, I think. Well, I mean, look how look how quickly the narrative changed from what they were marching for to property damage and rioting. They re- reduced the word protest to mm-hmm. four letters, you know, and now it's all about rioting and we're only focusing on rioters and property damage. And they robbed the Macy's and all of a sudden black people everywhere are like, we're still fucking standing in the middle of the street. Like people are still dead, you know, and they murdered a dude yesterday. I mean. In cold blood, yeah. and they dragged a bunch of students out of their cars in Atlanta and tased them, and like, Jesus Christ! Yeah, the the disconnect is amazing. But how quickly that narrative changed from, you know, a, a civil unrest uh, in the face of oppression to uh, immediately because, and I think this is the you know it's the the machine that goes how do we how do we change the narrative how do we adjust this so it's not so tragic and painful for Trump's reelection campaign. So it's got to be Antifa thugs, and they're just looking for a, you know, a reason to loot, and that's why they're setting homeless people camps on fire. And I'm like, that's not even what anti-fascism <laughs> is about. Yeah. Also, Antifa by not definition, a yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, yeah. you know, U.S. U-boats filled with anti-fascists stormed the <laughs> beaches of Normandy, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it makes no sense. Um, and of course, like it's not an organization like it's not the same as the nra or you know the naacp it's not like there's a president and meetings and a structure or whatever like it's a word describes that people that are actively not fascists you know correct yeah i mean the whole idea that you want to target anti anti anti-fascism as a terrorist movement that's the most terrifying thing i've ever heard yeah. That means anybody can be uh, a terrorist. You, me, anybody who's against fascism. I'm like, why aren't we just setting the White House on fire for that? Like, we should just set it on fire for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. It, it's insane the the <clears throat> outrage people feel over a business getting its windows smashed in compared oh. to the outrage those same people don't feel, you know, having so many people get you know, systemic, systemically incarcerated and murdered. And yeah, I mean, we still have black men in jail for, for marijuana uh, possession in Seattle, Washington. Like it's been legal here for four years now. And we're still sitting on, you know, lifetime uh, three, you know, third strike laws where people went, all right, I got, I got caught with pot three times and now I'm in jail for the rest of my life. 
And I mean, I, I if I were black, I'd be fucking turning cars over too. I'd be setting shit on fire. There's only your voice doesn't get heard, and I, I think we're re- we've reached a boiling point. You know, at some point, it's going to happen with fucking school age kids too when they're tired of getting shot at. They're going to have to turn everything over in their city. They're going to have to set things on fire and tear down Confederate statues and whatever it takes to to be heard because they're not being heard. Yeah, I, I, it's crazy. I it's been hard up here too because I'm you know I'm uh, I'm I'm taking care of a ninety four year old man who's super frail and I have surgery coming up and it's like I can't even leave the house like. It's such a bummer because I, I, I really want to go and, and stand, you know, arm to arm with everybody or at least behind everybody for support. But, man, man it's just from like, why, you know, of all, to, of all the times, you know, when I'm the yeah. most useless. So instead, all I can do is be an armchair fucking white ally and that doesn't do a whole lot of good. But, you know, I hope it doesn't stop because I feel like the momentum has to keep going if there's going to be any pressure applied to the administration at all. It just has to be a constant thrum of, of, of uh, you know, disconcerting, uh, loud uh, uh, voices that won't let that guy get away with what he wants to get away with. I mean, just gassing, gassing, you know, priests in a church to get them to leave so he could take a photo in front of it. Like, what is happening? Yeah, that, that's mind-blowing. He looks like he and was... Bootlegs. Uh, I, I liked all of the comments everybody was saying. It looked like he had never held a book before. <laughs> oh my god! I, the best one I heard is it sound. It, he looks like a dad who's trying to uh, set up a router for the first time. <laughs> it's like, well, how is it? Is it working now? Is it happening now? <laughs> such a, <laughs> it's such a dumb shit. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, uh. <clears throat> I didn't have anything super specific to uh, to ask you today. So our, our podcast is pretty conversational. Um, it's not, you know, strict question and answer kind of thing. Uh, but you just came out with a new record, and I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, anything. Anything you want to talk about, I'm down. I'm, You know, I've been locked up, uh, just me and my wife. We've been talking every day for the last five months, so... Uh, 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 another voice, somebody I can share this stuff with. Awesome. Who won't leave me if I say it again? <laughs> yeah. No, excited. I, I love it. This, uh, doing this podcast, uh, with my buddy is pretty much my only contact with the outside world. Most of the time. <laughs> That's all so, I got. Yeah. You can hear me. Okay. Right. It's okay. Oh, yeah, it it's sounds coming great. through. Okay. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, so, uh, Mucho Caballero came out a, Man, time, it seems like it was like a year ago. I know it was this year. Um, it, it was came out April like 27th. April, April. Yeah, April okay. 27th. Like almost a little, just a couple days shy of a month ago. And it feels like two years ago. Yeah, really. Uh, did you record that uh, last year? Or have you been sitting on that for a while? Yeah, we did it uh, the summer of 2018. Um, or no, the summer of 2019, actually. We recorded it in June... June 24th. Nope. No, it was 2018. That's right. We did the summer previous. And then uh, we did it in June. It was supposed to come out in September. Then I had a family tragedy, so I had to push everything back. And I told the label, we can't. I just can't. I can't tour on it. I can't do anything. We pushed it back to December. 
Uh, we were going to release it in December, and then I got uh, hit with something else right around November that I couldn't re- release it. And then uh, we decided on February, and then the pandemic hit, and we pushed it back to April. And we've been pushing and pushing ever since. So I think it's the album that just sh- it didn't it shouldn't have been released. I think that's the issue. Is <laughs> it just everything got in the way and was like, don't put this out. And then uh, we did anyways. We uh, scratched the monkey's paw, and it went out and. Uh, everyone was locked indoors and was like, I don't want comedy right now. And then I was like, comedy. <laughs> so I, I loved it. I thought it was, I mean, I, I turned out really good. It's the best thing I've done, uh, I think it's out hilarious. of all the albums. Uh, thanks man. I really, I mean, I really, I appreciate it. And I, I, I loved it. I mean, it was really a fun album. I loved everything. There wasn't a piece of material on there that I was like, uh, everything worked. And, uh, but I think it just came, it, it's, everything's going to hit at the worst possible time. Comedy's a weird in a weird place right now so i'm kind of glad it's out of me but i wish it would have had a little would have landed a little harder but it couldn't have i think you know right now everyone's locked in at home and their comedy is just it's that's it it's all over the internet everyone's just you know doing zoom rooms and uh and it's yeah I, i just think there's a weird burnout rate where it just came out at that time where everyone's like if i hear another fucking stand up joke i'm gonna lose my mind and then april 27th i was like my new album's out and they're like kill yourself <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i know i, know but how I, that I loved it i loved it i'm really proud of it but uh i wish it would have come out at a time that was less uh, uh tumultuous but I'm glad you liked it. There's some really fun stuff on there. I think that I'm bummed. I don't get to tell it anymore because I kind of uh, have to burn all the material when it's done. I don't want to do it again. And I'm kind of how pissed you typically because... operate or have operated. Yeah. 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 I usually like to burn it once it's out. I mean, I'll, I'll do the material until the time the album's released. And then I start retiring it all. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to beat a dead horse. And, and I feel like if you've already got the album, you've already heard the bits and, Comedy is kind of like a magic trick, you know, where if you see it once, you've seen it, you know, there's only so many ways you can make a, a you know, a rabbit come out of your hat. Everyone's going to go, I've seen it, I've seen that thing, or, you know, the joke and the setup and then the punchline is the big reveal. And once you've heard it, you're like, I get it. Yeah. So you have to give them something new. It's, it dies really fast once the joke happens. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Comedy is not something, uh, people typically rewatch, um, as opposed to like listening to a record or something like that. Um, other than of course the comedy nerds that are going to study it and critique it and then talk shit about it online. Oh man. And they'll pull it apart and go, you did your, you did this differently than you did it last time. I didn't like, I like it better on the album or I like something that you did on your other album. You did something similar to this time. I don't like the new thing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh my God, I just, I like jokes. Yeah. And then they're done. Yeah. And then I, I was talking to somebody, this was, this was years ago. Um, and they had a really weird interpretation of it. They, they went and saw, uh, Dave Chappelle on one of his reunion tours and they were like, well, he did all new material. And I was like, what, did you want to hear something from a record from the nineties? <laughs> like what? <laughs> it's already, it's already recorded. What is he just going to play the yeah, recording it's... over the PA system? Like, it's so weird because I think when, you know, a lot of comics, they, they do do that. They'll, re, you know, they'll do that same material. If they get a good hour, they'll do it for years. But I, I think 
uh, I mean, the best advice I ever got was like, if you really want to build your own audience, you kind of have to keep changing it because once somebody's seen it, they don't necessarily want to see it twice. And if you bring them something new, then they'll, the next time you come through, they're going to be like, oh, well, I definitely don't want to miss them because last time they did a whole new hour. And that means they're probably going to do a whole new hour this time. So you always have to come through. I, I never understood that. People get pissed when famous comics don't do their, their, uh, their, their nuggets, their gold nuggets. And it's like, we've already heard them. Yeah, it's not for fun sure. for me to tell that same joke a thousand times because the fun goes out of it. And if just hearing it is like, just go listen to the album. Here's my new dick joke. It's so new. <laughs> it's so shiny. It's touching the side of my dick that has never been touched before. Yeah, yeah. The dick is like a Rubik's Cube, and you can turn it over and try to figure it out. There's so many different layers and colors <laughs> to a, a good dick joke. I mean, you can just sit and twist the corners, and eventually you'll figure it out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I've definitely been in bands before where I kind of enjoyed the songwriting process more than playing them after a while. Yeah, there's a rote thing to it. I mean, I guess part of it with music is you got to, you know, the, the practicing because you, you want to be able to nail everything so that when you play it every time, everyone has the same emotional response to it that they did the first time. But that's the difference, though, like with music. Of course, it has an emotional response because it, there's no reveal. You're not building up to something and then going, ta-da. And, and comedy's all about ta-da. Comedy's all about, in this direction, I said these words this specific way. And at the end, like a magic spell, I blow your mind for a second. And you're like, I didn't even expect that. And then you laugh and it causes a reaction. Whereas music is supposed to make you feel things. You're rearranging the air molecules around you. And, and, it, and it, you know, you can... No one's ever gone like, oh, let me play this, uh, let me play this Dave Chappelle album uh, for you because it's the first time I ever kissed your mom was to this dick joke. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No one's ever done that. It doesn't have the same effect. It's, comedy's very short bursts and, 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 uh, and fast reveals, and it's there just for the sole purpose of getting a guttural reaction, and music is all about temperament. And uh, that's why they're always so different. That's why I think comedy needs to constantly be, you know, reevaluated and rearranged and, and reinvented. We don't, have to, we don't have to rearrange. We don't have to reinvent the wheel with music. It's only 12 notes. We just got to figure out what order we're putting them in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's funny. Uh, <clears throat> it made me think about uh, in an anthropology class one time that I was in. It was like a, a prehistory, prehuman kind of thing. Um, and they talked about the development of language, uh, and some people, of course, there's no way to actually test this, but some people think that laughing, like the sound that we make when we laugh was originally a sign of like surprise in a good way. So like people would be out, you know, and they'd hear something in the woods, they'd be terrified and they investigate and it would be, you know, a rabbit instead of a bear and the laugh would signal to other people like, Oh <laughs> There's all this tension, the tension has been broken, or, you know, something has happened that was the exact opposite of what I thought. Um, so. Oh, yeah, tension and release. Laughter is a big release. That's a, actually a really good way to put it, is that it is. It's a way to, un, un, you know, it's a, it's a steam valve. And when you laugh, you're not scared of things. It, growing up in a shitty household, that was definitely, I think, where I learned that early on is, you can laugh at things, they don't have power over you either. So it's very easy to take all the power away from someone who's abusive to you when all you do is laugh 
And you're like, ah, all right, yeah, you got to take a swing at me. That's fine. I get it. And then they lose all power. Yeah, uh, humor's great under, at that. Undercut their authority with that. Yeah. Yeah, because their whole thing is fear anyways. And, and, and you know, uh, take in our, the big, our biggest detractor is being afraid. So humor's great at disarming that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a really good tool. I think that's why political comedy can work in a lot of ways. It can also not work horribly, but... I think that's why it's so uh, uh, why it's so necessary and imperative to to social growth is because it's a way of like you know blowing up issues and helping people release that steam so they don't just go I feel helpless you know you laugh at it it takes all the power away also if you laugh at cops they just feel fucking stupid <laughs> takes all their power away if you laugh at a tiny cop oh my god short yeah. cops are the worst. Oh yeah, they've got the most to prove. I'm a short dude, but I, I just uh, I reacted the opposite way. Like there were two ways to go. One would be angry cop, and one would be, uh, you know, wear Hawaiian shirts and uh, drink a lot. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I just found out that uh, some of the protesters in Colombia we're wearing Hawaiian shirts, which I wear just a lot of like crazy pattern shirts. And oh, stuff. Boogaloo boys. Right. I didn't know that. And I was like, I'm so glad. I mean, I wouldn't have worn something like that to such a serious event anyway. Um, yeah, but I was like, damn, like, you know, I hope nobody lends me in with that just cause I wear, you know, cabana shirts. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't know about this Boogaloo boy thing until someone, a bunch of people had been, had been saying the word boogaloo in my response in a tweet tweet responses and just saying boogaloo to something I'd put out about um, white supremacists and proud boys and they were like ah it's just the boogaloos man and I was like what a fucking cool word we got to bring that word back man <laughs> boogaloo no one's been using it yeah and then it I had to good yeah and then I had to fucking urban dictionary it and it was like no oh, no oh they've ruined another cool word and another I mean they can take Hawaiian shirts it's gonna bum me out but god damn it. <laughs> Now all they have is just fucking khakis and uh, piped polos and Hawaiian shirts. And I'm like, God damn it. Why did they have to ruin another fucking thing I kind of liked? Yeah, I've got a friend whose brother has a tattoo that's in like Nordic runes, which is kind of cheesy, but it is what <laughs> it is. But the problem is one of the runes that's on it is like a rune for Odin or something like that. And yeah. now it's a neo-Nazi symbol. And so it's like, well, this dude got grandfathered in to this, you know, 15 year old tattoo that he has is now super offensive. And it's like, well, what do you, you know, just cover it up, I guess, you know, like laser tattoo removal. Yeah. Change everything into a dragon or a a, a barbed wire on your arm. That's the only way to get away from it. Mm hmm. But I, yeah, I think I, it's really a bummer when they co-opt stuff that socially we're all like, oh, man, that pisses me off. Like, why do you have to take the OK symbol? Now, every time I, I feel like being like, yeah, it's A-OK, I'm like, don't ever use your hands. You yeah. can't ever. Don't ever get a picture of you doing that. It's going to come back later. I used to use that in texting a lot when somebody would be like, say something to me that I needed the information, but I didn't need to actually like talk to them anymore about it. I used to give them like the little AOK thing and now I can't do that. Yeah. But now I, I've shifted towards the thumbs up. Hopefully they won't take that from us too. 
Uh, if they do, I swear to God, I'm going to start. Then I'm going to start setting things on fire myself. There's a certain there, you can't take our physical communication uh, 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 nuances, our, our our nomenclature. You can't take that. Yeah, I mean that, that's something that uh, COVID has already started to take from us. I've noticed, um, you know, uh, I'm me and my wife are doing as much so- social distancing as we can, but like going to the grocery store and stuff. Normally, uh, you know, I'm trying to signal that I'm not a threat to the people in my community by smiling at them and whatever else. And I feel like just behind behind the mask, I've just lost that layer with people. And I don't really, you know, my eyes are not expressive. And I'm like, you know, I hope all these folks don't lump me in with anybody else, you know. <laughs> it also makes it hard to be scornful of people. In public, it makes it very hard, which is something I usually use my face for, is to, <laughs> uh, uh, to register utter disappointment in people's uh, 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 behavior. And I can't do that with my mask on. Like, I can't, with just my face, I would normally be like, are you just going to stand in the middle of the fucking aisle with the freezer door open, defrosting everything before you make a choice? Or are you just going to pick one fucking ice cream? I could do that with my face, but now it just looks like I'm staring at somebody. I'm just stalking them. And they're like, what do you want, asshole? And I'm like, I don't know what I want anymore. I can't say things with my face. Yeah, somehow uh, staring at somebody is more malicious than having an actual malicious look at them. It's robbed me of my passive aggressivity, you know? Like, I can't mm-hmm. I can't do things with my face. Like, I can't make that. I can't be like, I can't do that. All I can do is with my eyes. Like, I... I hate you right now. And they're not that expressive. I can't say I hate you with my eyes. <laughs> yeah. These are, these are the, the, the true trials and tribulations <laughs> of COVID-19. Being able to non-verbally express your uh, displeasure God, if they with took people. the thumbs up, I'd be so fucking upset if a bunch of white supremacists were like, yeah, because I also want to be like, Black Lives Matter. And then they're going to be like, fuck you, racist. And I'm like, God damn it, I only have... That's it. I had this, and this is gone, and then I got that. Yeah, nobody high-fives anymore, but maybe if they, they take away so many more things, people will go back to high-fiving. Yeah. Uh, I think what we should really do is tell them that suicide is awesome. <laughs> Suicide's so cool, you guys. All the liberal kids are doing it. Yeah. They'll be like, we got to take that. Pwn the libs, kill yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to eat a gun to pwn the libs. It's, it's like the phrase... Uh, <clears throat> they'll shit themselves to make a liberal smell it. <laughs> it's kind of the... <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Oh, shit. That's really... Oh, God, that's that's actually really true. That's sadly true. Oh. Yeah, it's disturbingly true. They would shit their pants just to piss us off. Oh, yeah. what a bunch of monsters. Just, <laughs> eating the gun made me think about uh, the, <laughs> the joke about eating uh, cookie dough off the end of your gun. <laughs> being back for help. <laughs> Sorry, uh, yeah. No, I love no, that. Funny. I really do love that bit because it's fucking 100% true. Like, oh, my God. Uh, uh, the whole feeling. I still, I'm so true story, I'm still with that doctor who is a, a fan now, too. So, like, he loves my stand-up. And every time I have to go, if, when I, before everything crashed, I was, I'm such a fucking, my health is terrible. So I'm always at the, I'm always seeing a doctor. Up until, like, four months ago when everything got shut down. 
and my life support system was completely taken away where I couldn't just go like, tell me I'm okay. And they're like, you aren't sick. You're never sick. You just are psychosomatic. But I'd be in there every fucking two weeks. Like I, I think I broke my wrist doc and, uh, man, he, that's a real true story. When, <laughs> when he was, uh, go, he gave me an alcohol dependency test that I failed miserably, miserably. It was right before I got sober. And he was like, um, I mean, we're, uh, we're going to have to, we're going to have to have you change your diet. And, um, you know, I think your weight is a big issue as well. And your alcoholism is definitely, you're gaining a lot of water weight and, um, all of that can take away from your self opinion and, uh, can diminish your, your self-esteem and let's try and fix all this stuff. And, and I was like, Oh, I, I don't need a diet. I literally said that line. I was like, Hey, I don't need a diet. I, to stop eating cookie dough every night off the barrel of my gun. And he was like, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get someone to talk to you. I'm going to, can you stay here with the lights off and the door locked from the outside? Cool. I'll be right back. That's great. Yeah. And no, then I'm it just... ended up on an album. And so now he's always trying to fucking shift jokes at me every time I come in there. You should put this in your act, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I've definitely had the the. You were just talking about uh, turning fifty on your newest special, and I just turned thirty, which is really where the decline is starting for me. <laughs> um, probably to end up at at uh, basically your first line about turning fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I've had doctors be like, "Yeah, fix your diet, drink less, all this stuff," and I'm like. You don't know how much unhealthy stuff I'm not doing because <laughs> I'm drinking and eating too much. Yeah, you you don't understand what this is actually. This is in place of. Yeah. <laughs> like the things I'm replacing with this, you don't want to know. Yeah, for sure. It's is hard it? because I feel like your 20s your 20s are all about just putting as much life in you as you can. No expectations. And you're living with no consequence. It's just basically like I'm on my own for the first time. I'm emancipated. I'm hurtling through life and I'm just taking in experiences. I'm fucking everything. I'm doing all the drugs. I'm just, I'm fucking doing dangerous shit because I don't know what tomorrow is. And then 30s, your 30s are all about like, okay, I got to find out who I am. Who am I? Now that I have all this experience, who am I? And then the next 10 years, you start forming that that identity that'll be with you the rest of your life. And then in your 40s, your 40s is all about, uh, now that you have an identity and you've lived all this life, your 40s is all like, uh, all right, now I have to set a standard because now my life is, is it's, we're, we're, at a, we're at an apex, we're at a peak, right? So now it's all about establishing legacy. I have to have <laughs> some kind of a career legacy. I have to have something I'm shooting for. I need to achieve my goals, set goals and achieve them. And then as soon as you hit 50, all, all, all of that goes away and all you do is go, uh, oh, man, all I'm supposed to be doing now is getting ready to die. Oh, shit. Everyone's dying now. Everyone in my, you know, everyone in your family starts dying. Your friends start getting sick. And you're like, oh, all the fun stuff's behind me. And the next 20 to 50 years, if I'm lucky, are all just like, how do I maintain life? That's all I want to do. How do I maintain living? And it's, it's almost like the rug gets pulled out from you and you hit 50. And you don't go downhill. You just kind of go at a low angle. Uh, you're, I mean, you're moving down, but not at a, not in a, a steep enough gradient 
that you're ever going to pick up any steam. You just slowly roll and without stopping into a black hole of death. And the whole time you can <laughs> see it way off in the distance. And you're like, this is it. All I'm dealing with now is mortality. It's all mortality. It's all people getting ready to die, people who've already died, pets are dying, friends are getting old, they're dying, and you're like, this is it. The next 20 to 30 years is just waiting for the next funeral. Oh, my God. So you're, the, you're in the catbird seat at 30. You're in, a, <laughs> in your 30s, you're in the catbird seat. Uh, uh, live it up, put everything, because you've already done all the, the living, the dangerous living. Now it's just like, all right, how do I manage my lifestyle, and who, how do I, who am I? What do I want this to be? And then 40, it'll just start getting kind of like, it'll be surreal. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, setting goals for myself at this point. <laughs> uh, 60, I think when I hit 60, 60 is going to be, it won't be one of, those generation, one of those generational things where I hit 60 and go, all right, next 10 years. Now, what's this stage going to be? I swear to God, I stop at 50. Like 50 is just, that's where you go, you're, you're past adulthood. You can't say you're an adult anymore. Now, now you've gone way past all that. You'll never regain your youth. That's out of its way. All it is is just when I hit 60, I'll be like, oh, well, we made it this far. Now I guess we just put on our pith helmet and see if we can make it to 70. And then <laughs> all the excitement is gone. So take yeah. a, a cram as much in there as you can because 50 is dumb. That being said, what's your uh... – day-to-day like like what do you do um you know i've been so i've been uh, my wife's home too she is uh working from home remotely she'll be here mm-hmm. until maybe october november so my day is uh trying to stay out of her way because she's got you know she's the breadwinner she's got important work to do um without stand-up i've been cranking out or trying to it's really hard to write in the daytime uh, and it's, you know, forcing myself to, to try and work on this book, which is a big thing I'm trying to get done, uh, while I'm home and I'm not, I'm taking it at my own pace. This whole idea of like breakneck speed, I gotta be producing something that's all over. I mean, if anything, if COVID's taught us anything, it's like, there's a slowdown, just take, just take the curve. You'll be yeah. fine. You don't need, there's, we're in no hurry right now. So so now I've got an editor working with me on this book, and I'm just trying to get as much as I can out to them as I'm home. And uh, I'm in the process of just going through passes and repassing. I haven't written any stand-up because I don't know what's going to happen with it, honestly. Is, and, it, is um, it hard to, to write stand-up if you don't have an audience to test it out on? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who doesn't. I don't physically write my stuff out. I'm really about seeing what happens in the moment and then spending time condensing that into a, you know, a manageable format. So I have to really, I write in front of an audience all the time. Mm-hmm. It's the only way I can do it because I, I, I mean, you've heard, you've heard the, the, the stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of meter, uh, just like approaching it like a musician. Like I practice the piece and practice it so that the meter and the timing is down, my voice inflections, things, dumb, weird little things that people don't think about. Like where to breathe, vibrato, you know, all these weird little techniques that like help get your point across, make you sound vulnerable. I do all that stuff in front of an audience for like a year and before I feel like comfortable with a thing. And I can't do it at home because it just doesn't seem, it doesn't sound right. I write like a writer. And so that's the problem is then I just, it sounds like I'm reading something out loud. 
Yeah, and, like you're performing a piece or something. Yeah, because your writer's voice is different than your speaking voice, you know? Mm. I mean, it, you've, you've read Stephen King, but reading Stephen King's dialogue out loud and trying to make it sound human doesn't <laughs> work at all. It doesn't work at all. It's not at all how people talk, but on the page yeah. it looks great. Like, it makes sense, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of a... That, that's a fun little, uh, 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 weird little rhyming scheme you came up with there that, uh, you know, it's going to come back later in the book as some kind of monster thing that's going to, but none of that sounds like human speech. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, so writer's voices are very different. It's hard for me to, to do that because I, I always like making it seem like I'm saying it for the first time or that it's coming off the top of my head or I'm ha- I, I like it being conversational, but but you have to do that thing, I think, to make it seem like it's conversational, where you have all of your I's dotted and your T's crossed, and, uh, and it's airtight. So much so you don't have to worry about what you're going to say next. You don't have to think ahead of it. It's coming very naturally. But I think just like yeah, any other acting thing, you know? It's uh, Sprezzatura, the, the art of concealing art. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to make it seem like you haven't worked your ass up on this because you want the audience to relax into it with you and and you disarm them and you just, I mean, it is really just like acting. I mean, acting is all about, um, you know, the advancement of your communication ahead of time so that you can, uh, uh, you can sort of um, float the notion that it's happening in real space and time. And so you have to think about your speech and I, I, I know comic, I comics that, that can write, write their material. I'm so jealous of, I'm, I think I was, I was raised without uh, a lot of disciplines. So it's the laziest way to create, <laughs> but it works really well for me. Well, it, it, you might say it's lazy, but it also sounds like it's a whole lot of work refining it too. So that's but, true. It's um, a lot of every night, you know, you're out every night trying mm-hmm. to get every mic just so I can, I got to test it. I'm the only comic I know that's, you know, I think it almost 16 years in that when it was still happening, I'd be at a mic every night. I mean, I'd always be at mics listening at the comics too, but, but mainly like, I want to see if I can get this, I'm going to switch this word with this word and see how this all flows, you know, and talk to yourself constantly. God, I'm driving, you know, from state to state on some of those tours. I would just drive the entire time just talking, just doing that, doing bits and, seeing what felt comfortable and where I can take a breath. And it, I think it's more, um, more performative than anything else. So I suck at writing. Sense. That's the shitty thing. No, well, this book's going to take fucking forever if I ever finish it. Is, is it a memoir or is it a fiction or? No, it's, it's, um, it's, it's all nonfiction, but it's kind of a collection of, of anecdote. Well, they're an- anecdotal in the sense that they're short stories mm-hmm. that are really personal uh, but they're also, uh, uh, I think that it shines a light on where I get that, the dark part of my humor from, which is sort of, you know, whistling through the graveyard and, uh, finding humor in things that aren't necessarily that funny, but I've had a really crazy upbringing. I had a crazy life. I mean, I had a, you know, super abusive, uh, family the lineage goes all the way back, but like everyone in my family's kind of nuts. And my dad was in the mob, and I didn't meet him until I was 16. And my mom had me when she was, she got pregnant when she was 17, and she was a runaway. And uh, so there's a, but there's a lot, there's a stack of just weird shit that happened between birth and 40. 
you know, where I got myself in. I think I've always been a bystander to all this stuff. It just ends up happening around me. But yeah, so it's collected, you know, anecdotal shorts about, you know, the, the, like the first time I went fishing, but it wasn't just a fun story where I went with my dad. It was a horrific story. My dad got bullied for the first time and I got to watch it happen. And I was like, oh man, that guy that beats the shit out of me all the time is getting horrifically bullied by a bunch of Air Force vets. This is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And yeah, weird shit that you could, you can't tell at the dinner table. Like, these are stories that I couldn't share in a group of people because they would just be so horrified that I thought they were funny that they just wouldn't call me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's almost like there's there's something about writing a book um, where there's kind of a like solemnness, uh, solemnity, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the word. Um, but to the the book that might allow you to tell some of those darker stories, uh, you know, off of a stage where people might view them through a little different lens. Yeah. Well, you know, like, have you ever been with something, you ever been around a group of people and everyone's kind of just, they're just chatting, right? They're just chatting. They're just talking about their day or things that had happened. Or they're like, ah, oh, man, I remember in ninth grade, uh, when fucking Steve McKenzie, uh, got pissed off at this other guy and he swung and he, and he punched the brick wall because the kid moved, man. It was crazy. And the other guy's like, oh, I saw a fight like that one time when I was in junior high. Everybody's got that thing. And then there's always one fucking guy in that group that's like, yeah, my uncle tried to punch me once. And that didn't work out too well for him. Of course, his fist went right through the drywall and he hit an electrical cable. And we ended up having to drive him to the emergency room because the whole right side of his body was paralyzed for about a month. But. That was okay because it turned out that he was a child rapist. So, you know, just see, and you're like, wait, what? What the fuck? There's always that one guy who's just like, I have a story, but my story doesn't work with everybody else's, you know? Yeah, and you're doing and a book of that. That's all, That those are all those stories, you know? <laughs> or, uh, so. You should uh, introduce each chapter with a, a famous person's memoir. <laughs> like, have like. Oh my God. <laughs> the first time, like, <laughs> Michelle Obama. <laughs> went fishing or something like that, you know, whatever. Oh, every like, epigraph uh, is... <laughs> Alec Baldwin has a story about like going out to dinner with his parents or something. I don't know. All the epigraphs are just famous people's, like uh, 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 they're just blurbs from famous people's bios. It'd be really funny. Yeah. Every, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, like I, um, I've been, I was doing this, I was telling this story cause it's kind of a great way to like describe what the book is about. But, um, I, uh, I have a bunch of, you know, I, I have friends, I have human friends and, uh, I don't have any of the same life experiences that they do, even like normal shit that we would get together and talk about. Like they would be like, yeah, you know, I, I did some experimenting in college, man. And I, you know, had a couple threesomes and then someone else is like, I had, oh man, you had three, I had threesome, I had threesome <laughs> at the, uh, remember that girl that you were dating and then her girlfriend came over and then all my friends are like, Oh, that's just common knowledge. We all have threesomes, man. And then remember that time we had that orgy and I'm in the back, like at the table. I'm like, who are you people? What? <laughs> you just had all this sexual experimentation. Like all these things are just commonplace. You just had regular intervallic sexual experimentation. I didn't have any of that. And then it came to me and they were like, what about you, man? And I was like, well, I didn't have a threesome, but um, I did have my own apartment in high school where I lived rent free because my roommate was a level four child sex offender and his mom was the landlord. He said, if I kept an eye on him, I could live there for free. 
but I haven't had a threesome. And they were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm like, that, those are my stories. Like that's, that's where I'm at. Like I've never had roadhead, never had roadhead. Just never happened. I think that's a main thing to be fair. I think it is, but, but I did date a (laughs) Vietnamese girl. Uh, I did date a Vietnamese exchange student in high school and we didn't speak each other's language, but one night she showed me how to hotwire a car. And then we (laughs) stole that car and drove to Eugene and lived in it for two weeks. But like I haven't had roadhead, so I'm the like, <laughs> like I missed. I've, there's experiences I haven't had, but I'm like my experiences are just uniquely different. Unfortunately, it, it's funny because all those things like threesomes and roadhead and like are sort of things that are maybe a little bit taboo sometimes or whatever. But they're kind of like yeah. acceptable. Like, it's kind of like transgressions, but it's like a fake transgression because it's like, well, if you assume a lot of people are going to do this, then what are you transgressing against? You're transgressing against, like, society at large, which is supportive of these <laughs> things. So you're you're bringing up actual transgressive things that you're really not supposed to do. Like, yeah. it's, not, it's not a there's not a fake prohibition on those things. Like, people actually don't want you to do they actually don't no, want like, you to steal the car. <laughs> I haven't, like, I haven't, I've done, at 50, I've done no butt stuff. And I'm bummed about mm-hmm. it. Like, I mean, it's the thing. It's it's butt stuff. Everybody I know has had some butt stuff. They've done some ass play. I've just never been invited to that playing field, nor have I asked to be in that playing field. I just, it's something that's eluded me, and I've never chased it because it wasn't interesting to me. I've done no butt stuff. But I've seen four dead bodies. So I have that. Right? Like, that's my butt stuff. My butt <laughs> stuff is I've seen a horrific amount of corpses, more than you should ever see. <laughs> yeah. I guess I've seen a lot of dead bodies, but I, I used to be an EMT, so that doesn't really count. Ah, uh, you had, leg up. Kind of a you had a leg up on me. Yeah. But well, the, no, you just, it, it's just more privilege. It's more privilege for dead body viewing, you know, like. You're at a place where you know you're going to see them, but if you work at a McDonald's, you should never see a dead body. Oh, for sure. The, the weird <laughs> thing is when you're when you're doing that thing, you know, working like emergency medicine or whatever, you have so much adrenaline going because, I mean, usually it's not dead bodies. Usually it's somebody being hurt. You're like, well, I have to help this person. So it doesn't bother you at all. It could be the grossest thing in the world. But then you watch a movie that night with like oh. some gore in it or something <laughs> and it's horrible. Oh, I never understood that about like human beings. Why, you know, like just think about like when you're younger and when your friends might like break their leg in a really horrific way and you're just like, well, okay, put your arm around my shoulder. We're going to bring you to the closest parent or whatever. Um, and get this worked out. But then seeing that in a 10 second clip on YouTube, would be unbearably oh. disgusting and horrific. Oh, that that fucking Lakers injury a few years ago where the guy's ankle and his knee went back. Yeah. Like, oh. But I can watch the most horrific, like, hardcore, brutal horror movies and just be like, ah, oh, it's still not enough, man. <laughs> but you play that clip and every, all the blood just goes to my feet. Like, I get cold. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, man, every nerve is alive. Oh, I hate it. Oh, yeah. I don't Tram- know what that is. If somebody ever sends me a video and it's loading and the thumbnail is somebody on trampoline, I'm like, I can't watch this. Nope. Nope. It's what was that MTV show where they had, it was always like, uh, uh, like skateboarding injuries and I can't remember what it was called, but 
they would show the injury. Like they would show the, the footage of the guy getting injured and then go through like his x-rays and then talk to his doctor and then all the reconstructive surgery. And I can't remember what it was called, but I was, um, I couldn't stop watching it, but mm-hmm. I also couldn't look through my, like I had to look through my fingers and I'd be like, Oh, I can't, this is amazing. But wow, oh, no, that guy just kind of like some guy was, uh, jumped up on a rail and escaped ground a rail at, a, at an elementary school. And then, uh, hit like, you know, the board broke and his legs went over the rail. He straddled it. Uh, it ruptured his testicles, <laughs> but the worst part was then he fell over and hit his front teeth on the step going down. So it broke all of his teeth in his upper plate and split his face open. And, and, and they're talking about it. Like they keep showing it over and over again. And the whole time I'm watching it through my fingers and then they're going through the x-rays and I'm just, I'm sweating. I'm just sweating. Ice mm-hmm. cold sweat coming out of my body. And then easily an hour later, I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch Baskin. I haven't seen that in a while. I'll watch the movie Baskin <laughs> and just watch a horror movie where, you know, it's just the most horrific display of inhumanity. And I'm like, oh, I have no problem. This will be how I calm down. What is wrong with us? What's wrong with us as a species? Yeah. I mean, it's why, you know, why do you listen to depressing music when you're a depressed person? there's something about it when i quit drinking i quit drinking uh three years ago and i had to change my playlist all my playlist stuff was and i love the music but like i loved i like i had stuff like uh my son stilts and grave and hearse and this is this most this dark uh um maudlin mid-tempo it just made me that that weird uh um i don't know what chemical gets released some kind of weird negative endorphin that comes out where you're just like, I'm going to feel more sad. And then it, it just, it mm-hmm. scratches that itch. Dude, my whole playlist now is just like the most, it, everything just sounds like you're shopping at a wet seal. <laughs> it's just the most upbeat, uh, like just pro retail, like spacey trance, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, trap music and like, you know, high energy. It's good feeling. No, no, no minor chords. And I'm like, what is, what happened to me? My whole playlist is like, and also, uh, I started smoking pot two years ago, mm-hmm. which is very new for me because I all I did was I drank, I just drank all the time, and I didn't smoke pot because I'm like that's for losers, and uh, and now I smoke a ton of pot, and the music that I spent the last forty eight years of my life on just r- just raging, I just constantly making fun of it uh, was reggae, and now I can't stop listening to reggae. <laughs> so I don't know what happened to me, but I think it's marijuana does that. I think it's music designed specifically for stoners. And then that when you're sense. high, you're like, this makes, yeah, I like this. Why didn't I like this before? Oh yeah. Cause I lacked the ironic drug I needed to make this music <laughs> palatable. Is it, is it that, or is it that if you're smoking weed, you can be like, Oh, ha ha. I'm smoking weed and listening to reggae music <laughs> and it kind of takes some of the, the onus off of you to do it sincerely. You can be I, like, well, think... I'm stoned. I'll listen to some reggae, which is a lot different than like being sober at 10 in the morning and somebody gets in your car and you put in a reggae album. That's true. Yeah. That's weird. That's a weird, uncomfortable social contract. You haven't signed with anybody, but, <laughs> but I'm loving it. Non ironically. That's what's mm-hmm. bugging me is I'm like, Oh, you know what? I feel like listening to some Peter Tosh while I cook. Like, I years ago, I, if anybody, I would have been over to someone's house and they're like, hey, I'm going to throw a little something together in the kitchen. Guys, mind if I listen to some Peter Tosh? I would 
rag on them so hard, I wouldn't stop ragging on them. That would be every roast joke, you know? <laughs> and now I'm like, yeah. hope that guy doesn't see what I'm doing right now because I'm fucking loving this, man. <laughs> yeah, nice. I, I know what you mean. I uh, I quit drinking for a couple years, um, a few years ago, and I've also never been a, a pot smoker and not drinking. I would occasionally enjoy smoking some weed, uh, which is something I just... It's not that I dislike being high, but just that usually I couldn't smoke weed because I had been drinking and it would make me throw up. So <laughs> being sober, you can actually smoke weed without getting sick. So, ah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I can't, I could never crossfade, man. That I, when I, when I drank, I was, cause I drank a lot. So when I drank, I'm like, this is the thing we're doing. Anything else is mm-hmm. going to get in the way. I tried to get high a few times when I was drunk, and I was like, this is one thing's canceling out the other. Now I can't it feels talk. feels terrible. Yeah, it's a terrible feeling, exactly. And, uh, but I love getting high, and I'm actually very uh, grateful that my wife is cool with it because it's a huge mm. lifestyle change for me. Like, I just, you know, I, I'm out with Posehn all the time, or was, you know, before all this happened. And Brian smokes a ton of weed. And so I was like, it's, you know, you're going to hang with him. You should probably get high. It's going to be more mm-hmm. fun, you know, and learn to not be such a nerd. And let's have some weed and we'll hang out with a bunch of strangers and stand in a circle. Those days are over. No more standing. <laughs> I just realized that we can't stand in a circle and pass a pipe anymore. Yeah, that's with strangers. <laughs> yeah. CDC is Fuck. not down on sharing a piece. No, I think, I mean, even just my mentality, I'm like, I will never fucking do that again. What was I thinking? <laughs> like, but like, you know, you get high and then after a while I was like, I kind of, I think I'm going to smoke at home. You know, I'm going to smoke in the daytime. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? I'm smoke a little bit before I write. What am I doing? I'm, you know, it's okay. And I thought, oh, I kept it as a secret from my wife for a little while because I was like, oh, she doesn't know. She fucking knew. Everybody knows. They can, they yeah. know when you're high. You can't talk to it's people. It's one of the smelliest high. substances on earth. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to hide that you're high. And especially at 48 or something when you're like, I'm not high. And your one eye's over here and the other <laughs> eye's over here. And I'm trying to like, I'm like, there's got to be rails to hold on to while I'm getting asked these questions. I feel like I'm going to fall over. And <laughs> she's so into it. Like, she's like, I'm glad that you're high because it makes you not an asshole and you don't get angry. And you don't say, God damn it all the time. And uh, I was like, oh, you're like so cool that she's been like, let me kind of, ease into it and bend my support structure because it's i mean i it's only pot for everybody else that's done marijuana their whole life but i was like super anti-drug growing up like booze was not a drug to me booze was like ah booze is okay that's what you do yeah it's legal because drugs are bad yeah drugs are terrible hair have a full bottle of rosé uh but now i'm like oh i can smoke weed all the time my sister my my awesome my sister-in-law uh, who's super fun, very cool, very Christian, very um, very conservative, not right-wing, but very conservative in their lifestyle, right? This Christmas, just bought me a bunch of, like, fun weed stuff. <laughs> yeah, here's a, you know, here's a weed coaster, and here's a fun little mouse pad that has, like, a lady smoking a joint on it, and here's some fun weed pajamas. And, and the whole family's like, yay, Uncle Derek, hi now, this is great, this is so much better. <laughs> It's like, how shitty of an alcoholic was I that my whole family is like, we are so glad that you're doing marijuana. Congratulations. Yeah. That, so now, now I'm the fun uncle who just gets high all the time and everybody's okay with it. 
Yeah, I, I think I probably would more uh, if I had ready access to edibles, um, but it's still illegal here. So, hey, Kitty. Oh, yeah, this guy's getting in the shot. Sorry. Nice. I've, I've got a red he just cat, woke too. Up. Name's Little Wayne. <laughs> What's up, Little Wayne? He's such a little shit. Uh, I love him. Um, here, let me put this on sleep again. He turned my computer on. Um, yeah, we've got two of them. I got that dumb one, and then I got another small old lady who's who's on her last legs. She's definitely she's she's seen a lot of life, and we're we're about ready to uh, send her off to the great beyond. But we kind of we were supposed to do that uh, this week, and then we just kind of got rubber legs about it, and we're like, mm-hmm. she's not ready yet. She's not ready. She's still like. Hey guys, I learned a new trick. Every time that we want to put an animal down, this happens every time when they get to that place where we're like, the suffering's about to start. So we're going to have to make a decision so this animal doesn't suffer. Every fucking time we make an appointment, we're like, we've gone through the crying and the, um, the psychological preparation to say goodbye to our animal. And then uh, about a day before we're supposed to take them in, all of a sudden they jump up and go, Hey, I learned how to roll over. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then we got to hold on to him for a little longer. So, uh, she's in that phase right now. She's like, I didn't even know I could do sleight of hand magic. <laughs> so now we got to keep her alive for a little longer. Yeah. We, uh, <clears throat> my wife and I just last year put down our old cat. Um, he was like 13. Um, and it was really sad, but, he basically was healthy until like 24 hours before we put him down. So I felt pretty good, pretty good about that. Um, Good timing. Yeah. That's kind of how I want to go out. I know it's not going to because of, uh, the way that my body is, but I would love to just have a 24 hour warning. Be like, you're going to die. Okay. (laughs) Oh, I'd hope. I I just think it's going to be something stupid. I'm not going to see it coming, and it's going to be some dumb thing where I'm not paying attention, and it won't be natural, and it's going to, it's going to thoroughly uh, psychologically and emotionally traumatize everyone around me, and I'll leave that legacy instead. <laughs> It'll be one of those things where, like, he didn't even see the truck made out of fans drive by him. I've never <laughs> seen a person be turned into uh, matzo ball soup before. It was amazing. I, I, my death is going to be one of those things where people are like, I'm still in therapy. I don't know how I want to pluck my eyes out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can only hope. Yeah. If I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, that's how I'll go out. God forbid quietly on my bed, surrounded by people I love. (laughs) I want people to go, he died doing what he loved, not knowing what was going to happen next. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the problem with, you know, dying on your bed with people around you is there's so much, uh, emphasis put on like your last words and your last days or whatever, which is a lot of stress to put on somebody that's dying anyway, you know? Oh, if I was in that position, my, I would spend a week straight just telling everyone to pull my finger (laughs) just, just in case that was my last thing. Like we got to keep doing it. You got to pull my finger again. Ah, God damn it. Really? This has been going on for days. Just pull it. I want that to be my last thing. And I don't want this to be my last thing. So pull my finger. Yeah. 
I don't want this to be my last thing would be a good headstone engraving. <laughs> that would be. Well, those were his last words, unfortunately. He had to pull his finger for five days straight, and then finally he got frustrated. <laughs> those were his last words. Who knew that's that apoplexy was what would send him into a fucking cardiac arrest? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I need a second. That's funny. No. Uh, but yeah, so we've talked about the end times. Uh, <laughs> yes. We've talked about uh, your new record, which is also kind of about the end times. Um, but in a more societal way. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I, mean, I think it's, I, I cover some generational stuff in there. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, we have, uh, it, it's such a weird thing right now, kind of the, the generational disconnect. Um, and of course, social media and the news media aren't, aren't good at bridging that divide anyway. No. We're, they're terrible at it. And, and I think that I also do think that like the generations under me are way more proactive about fixing shit. And a lot of that is because we were, my generation wasn't, we weren't. We were hands off, man. We were doing coke, and we had zippers all over everything, and <laughs> giant shoulder pads. And then we got into the '90s and tried to, you know, all, all the '90s were were the '80s with higher waist pants. That's all it was. And then we got through the '90s, and then you know, I mean, we just hands off everything. We let two Bushes be president. My generation. Like I don't yeah, think true. <laughs> it, I don't think I don't think uh, millennials or uh, or uh, or or Zeds um, would ever you know let uh, a fucking Bush be president or a Trump again. Like that's a whole generation of people that I think, unlike the baby boomers, because their parents came from privilege, right? I think that's the disconnect with boomers is post-war parents, but. They still came out of all of that money. I mean, they had money. They came out of a war and they were flush. And then they had something they could leave. You know, everybody had tons of property, businesses. They were the government was like, "Fuck, we lost four hundred and five thousand people. Let's put some money into the." Uh, everybody gets a business loan, and yeah. everybody uh, came out. All these baby boomers had trust funds, and and then they, you know, they had all this ideology because they could. They could walk away from it. Because they could, they could take a risk and be like, you know what? I'm going to fuck in the park and I'm going to do acid. But I also know because when I'm 25, i got to calm that shit down because my dad's leaving me the Chrysler dealership. And then it was all about like short hair, brown shoes, brown slacks, making rapid fire decisions about their retirement fund, putting as much as they can into an IRA and making sure that it grows, and then getting their kids to a place where they were like, I don't have time to raise you because I have all this fucking, I have all these social leanings I can, I can, I can go uh, to the left and have an orgy with my friends or a key party, or I can go over here and start doing bumps uh, off a, a bathroom sink and go dance a little bit. Your mom's <laughs> going to fuck the neighbor. The neighbor's going to fuck somebody else's neighbor. And I'm going to fuck anybody I want to. We don't have time for you. Also, I'm working a second job because we have luxuries. We have so many luxuries available to us. And that's why we grew up. Baby boomers left us fucking to take care of ourselves. They had no responsibility. I think with 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 Zoomers and and post millennials, these are generations of people whose parents were fucking broke. 
And they were also, they had one parent home because one of them couldn't work or they couldn't find a job. And so I think when they pull themselves up by their bootstraps socially and start fixing things, it's not going to have the bounce back that it did 30 years ago when boomers were like, actually, we don't care about anything. We're just, we're just narcissistic nihilists about everything. <laughs> and money's always going to be in the account. Dad's leaving us a ton of cash when he dies. All I give a shit about is about going to Aruba and listening to late era Beach Boys. And, <laughs> and Zoomers are like, we don't have shit. We came from nothing. We have to build something. And I'll be goddamned if I'm going to stand here and we'll let you motherfuckers, uh, uh, conservative assholes, chip away at it. They're going to build something that's structurally sound. And, and it, it's because we did nothing. My generation didn't do jack shit. We were really too busy being, I mean, we're a latchkey generation, you know? We were left alone, and we just did what we could to survive. I mean, we weren't the worst. We're not boomers, you know? But, True. But we were also, we didn't do anything because we were so fucking... Uh, um, non-confrontational. We were raised without those skills. We were raised to be like, you know what? You're hungry. Go make yourself a fucking peanut butter and jelly sandwich and sit in front of the TV. And that's all we like to do. We love to just uh, TV and no confrontation. And uh, it's the most uh, trouble-free life we can have. So I, I'm, I'm lucky that uh, I'm hopefully I get to uh, live long enough to watch a couple of generations, not only, uh, clear out all the debris and rubble from the last three previous generations who've just destroyed everything and left nothing behind, but also build something structurally sound. You know, I hope I get to I live long enough to see it. I was thinking the other day, uh, there are people that will be able to vote in this upcoming presidential election that were born after September 11th. So basically their entire life, the United States has been at war with terrorism. Yeah. How's that crazy. worked out for us? Yeah. Oh, it's so crazy. I mean, even me, like I, w- I was born in 1990, September 11th happened in 2001. So of my 30 years, 11 of them were spent not at war. 19 of them were spent at war. Which, I was 30. Uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Oh God. It comes back around. I was 30. Mm-hmm. I was 30 when it happened. And I, I really thought I had the world at my feet at 30. And, you know, I was, of course, I was still living in a squat with crust punks and, you know, hashing out my, my paycheck at a guitar center before they got corporate and weird. But, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was 30. It's hard to believe that, like, I was already, I had my life, you know, I, I had my character and the world came apart. And I can't even imagine being that young and 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 being raised in that. I mean... That changes your whole pers- your worldview and your perspective is based on those. Inc- you know, those are things that are polarizing. They imprint themselves on your memory. Uh, for me, it's just something I was there when it happened, and so it didn't mm-hmm. affect me at all because I was already. I already have things, and I already have a job, and I already know who I am. And especially a generation that that they didn't even they weren't even there for that. That's got to be. They've yeah. got to be so outraged. Yeah, I can't even. They gotta imagine. be so outraged. Yeah, I mean, I spent basically middle school being lied to about all that, and then from high school on trying to figure out what actually happened and what you know what the truth is in the world, which is you know terrifying. I I I literally remember just every teacher that we had being like, oh well they attacked the United States because they hate our freedom. 
And like as a sixth grader, that didn't really make sense, but I didn't really understand politics. And then say get to ninth grade or something when I start to have a little bit, my brain's starting to develop and I have a little bit of critical thinking. I'm like, well, they had very specific targets. They attacked the Pentagon, like the center of yeah. US military intelligence, and they attacked the World Trade Center. Neither of those are representative of freedom. Like, neither of those are buildings that have any kind of symbolic representation of freedom. Yeah, they're full. They, you know, one, one, one target was full of middle management hedge fund guys and insurance companies and military uh, contractors and, you know, and, and attorneys and things that, uh, you know, the financial sector and then the Pentagon, of course, it is military, uh, hard, hard brass tacks. Uh, they didn't, you know, they didn't attack a Macy's or a Heli Hansen full <laughs> of innocence. You know, I mean, yes, there were, I mean, when I say innocent, I mean, people who, um, people who were just, I'm just buying a shirt cause I like a shirt. It was full of people who do work a day jobs. And unfortunately, you know, they, they're, whether they know it or not, they're part of the cog in that machine that, uh, is part of why the Middle East hated us so much. And, and it's mainly Saudi Arabia anyways. I mean, they've been, Saudi Arabia has, has, I don't know why they've gotten a pass. I still can't, for the, to this day, I'm like, we all knew it was Saudi Arabia nationals. Like, how the fuck did these guys get away with this? And then we're over here bombing Iraq. I remember being 31 years old and we're standing in Guitar Center watching uh, the shock and awe deployment. And all of my friends were like, um... Wasn't it Saudi Royal Nationals that, that fucking flew those planes into our buildings? And I'm like, yeah, we're we're all just going to say the same thing, but no one's going to stop it because there it is. Yeah, and, and and I think that was the first hint that I had that that our 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 government wasn't just complicit in things where you know I'd always suspected like, yeah, you know what? They don't give a fuck. They are literally they're an arm of the military industrial branch. Now the federal government is a business and they're a business and business is booming when we have private contractors and no big contractors who are constantly putting money in the coffers of congressmen and senators and, and, you know, giving $500 million to a presidential candidate, unprecedented, that that's Mm -hmm. what we're going to see more of. I hadn't really, I'd always heard that, you know, you always have your mom and dad, my mom and dad were, you know, they're, they're ex hippies, but they also had that weird ideology where, I thought they were liberal, but they were super conservative in their heads. Mm-hmm. So they would always talk about conspiracy theories like, ah, the Illuminati and the Bilderbergers and the uh, and, uh, and Bohemian Grove. And I saw that shit and I was like, oh, it's not even about that. It's literally about sheer capitalism. Capitalism and the love of capitalism and how do we manipulate poor people to go and fight wars so we can plug these hoses back in to this never-ending uh, sprigate of oil that's coming out of the ground. Yeah, I I always thought that about like conspiracy theory stuff where it's like the answer isn't as hidden as you think it is. Like it's a very clear the reason why the richest one percent makes all the decisions of the world is because of how capitalism works. Like you don't have to have a secret cabal to control a country when you own percentage points of that country's GDP. Like. Yeah, it's it, you don't even have to make a conspiracy. You already have all that power. Like, if you can buy all of the highest ranking, you know, official elected positions in the United States, you don't need to do anything secretly. Like, you've already done it. You know. 
that's it. I mean, and now we're watching, I think we're watching now we're at that, that second tier where now citizens United and, and we're seeing how corporations themselves can now, uh, maneuver the conversation in, in directions. They can push a presidential candidate or an incumbent or a whole arm of the, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of an intelligence branch or the Senate into a particular direction, or they can load our courts full of people or it's, it's so fucking scary to be 50 and be like, I, how did I not see this coming, man? Like all the signs were there. The hindsight's definitely 2020, but it makes me wonder what, what kind of awful, horrific behavior is going to be commonplace when Zoomers are my age. Like what's going to just be commonplace horror when those guys are my age and they're like, yep, that shit happens all the time. School shootings? Oh, you guys only had school shootings? Oh, I wish we only had school shootings because you know what happens every day now is just mass suicides or, <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, people are just poisoned by the water table all the time. We don't care. It's just normal complacency. We have that's our regular day to day thing. Yeah. You know, I think hornets the size of forearms. Yeah. Oh, surveillance is a big part of it. Like, it's going to be. Too. Like mm, you and I right. have spent most of our lives not being directly tracked for anything. But again, I mean, there are people that are going to be voting for the first time in their lives that, you know, from the time they were in elementary school and using mom's iPhone, you know, there's been a file on them, you know, on a server somewhere belonging to Facebook yeah. or whoever. Uh, and they've, they will never have a day in their life where they're not being spied on, you know? Yeah. I see part of me sees, um, especially with people under like under 25 people that are, that are just getting out of college and, you know, their entire life has been spent, uh, um, connected to everyone, to the entire world. They've always been connected. I think they're going to be a lot more suspicious or are a lot more suspicious of 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 the um, of this sort of uh, uh, the the intelligence gathering, data gathering. Um, I think that we're going to see if if we're lucky, we're going to see a full uh, scale dismantling of a lot of those systems when those kids start running for public office, mm-hmm. or you know when they get out when they get out of uh, uh, when they get out of college with their, you know, a, a doctorate in engineering. And the first thing, instead of, instead of going to a coding lab or they're going to go, nope, you know what we need to do is we need to dismantle AI systems in, uh, uh, in social media. That needs to be done. We need to get rid of that. It's dangerous. We're going to see a lot of that. I think this old guard of dipshits who are my generation, guys like, I mean, Scott Walker, Generation X, right? All these fucking incumbents that all of us hate, these slithering, bootlicking, you know, uh, uh, they, uh, uh, Priyat Chappelle, uh, the guy who runs the FCC, I can't remember mm-hmm. his name. But uh, all those guys, uh, not Jay Powell, she's our congresswoman. Um, but uh, I think his name is Ajit Pai. Ajit Pai, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and, and not, not to get Indian names confused, uh, that was my bad. That, uh, bad look for a white dude. Uh, but... Um, but I think we're going to see, I mean, that, those guys are our, gen, they're Generation X. They're my generation. And they are doing exactly what, the, you know, 
we we just follow heed, man. You know, we we're we're latchkey kids. We do whatever anybody tells us to. There's no confrontation. We're not trailblazers. We just go. You're giving me a paycheck, then I guess I push this button. This is fuck America a hundred times, and then I get a fucking treat. And I think we're going to see a, a full scale dismantling of a lot of these systems. Not to mention, I think so. You and I know, yeah. And I think also we're watching. I mean. You know why? You know why the military's on the street, man? Isn't because uh, of any other reason than white America, as we know it, is now faced with the extinction of their privilege completely, and they are like a like a cancer cell uh, uh, that's being uh, chemoed. Uh, it's not dying; it's fighting harder than it's ever fought because it's about to die, and. That's what we're watching. That's why tanks are on the street. That's why cops are out, is because you're seeing the fundamental last gasp of the resistance of race to, uh, to, to, a, um, to a normative, inclusive culture. White people are fighting it so hard, they're showing up in the streets with guns attached to them. Don't you fucking make me uh, fit in. Don't make me have to abide by the same rules as everybody else and level the playing field. I'm resisting. That's what we're seeing. I mean, you know, the, that, that all these protests are, are you know, double-edged where uh, I think people of color, black America, are tired of being oppressed and, and tired of not being listened to. That's a hard part of it. But the side that they're fighting against is the last bastion of full-on, arm-to-the-teeth white supremacy that just is about to die. It's going to mm-hmm. – they're going to lose. I mean, even if it comes to a full-scale civil war, they'll lose. They lost – They've lost three times in, 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 in American history, and they'll lose again because they're overconfident and stupid and they can't read, and their necks are too thick, so they can't turn their heads fast enough. <laughs> you got to come up from behind them. That's the trick. You got to sneak up on these fat guys from behind. They can't <laughs> turn around fast enough. All you got to do is say boo, and then one of their arteries pops, and then you go on to the next one. It's all about surprise. The you know, <laughs> element of surprise is I'm on your left, and then they're like, oh, I can't turn fast enough they got to turn their mobilized scooter all the way around in a circle to reach you and that's how we get them but <laughs> i mean uh, i'm i'm looking at i'm really looking at this from you know from the from the perspective of of i mean i because i'm part of that privileged culture i'm watching it and i'm seeing the struggle from white people to grasp what this means and they're fighting so hard against it i'm not racist how dare you i don't have privilege I have a paycheck, and I have to pay to the government, and they take things from me. And just because I don't get speeding tickets, even though I do 80 and a 20, I, I've had a hard life. My dad didn't love me. We're watching the resistance crumble, and it, hopefully we get to see it. Hopefully we get to see a corona of, of peace and this, where the latitude flattens out, and, and suddenly young people are like, okay, we're fucking. We're getting this thing dismantled. We're shaking the pillars of fucking racism, and then once that crum- starts to crumble, and that infrastructure crumbles, and things like you know militarized police, how's that a thing we even let happen? Militarized police. Once we see a crumbling of you know the white infrastructure in our Congress and our Senate and our intelligence communities, and because also we're going to be we're going to be um, we're going to be outpaced, you know. White people are not going to be the majority if we play our cards right. We're not going to be a majority anymore. And we're not, and also, there aren't going to be a lot of rich white people in 20 years because they've 
floundered their parents' money so poorly. There isn't, you know, people aren't inheriting billions anymore. Less than 1% of the population will inherit uh, uh, a tremendous amount of wealth if it, it's still around, if we even have paper money, if we even count the, the debt anymore, if anonymous doesn't hit a button and completely destroy our economy overnight where nobody has anything, nobody holds anything, no papers. Like, I, I just feel like we're on the cusp of maybe something good, but it's going to be real horrific before we get there, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And that's, my, that. and that's my old man speech. <laughs> no, no, on that, on that uh, sort of high note lifting us out of the current horror. <laughs> uh, it's been really good talking to you, Derek. Oh, you too, man. Thanks so much. I hope I didn't overtalk. I do that sometimes where I'm a, a old man just starts ranting. So no, it was great. I'm I'm glad. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Likewise, so. it was really good to, to see you again, Eddie. I haven't seen you uh, since, and I do remember that Negroni, by the way. Awesome, awesome. Yes, yeah. I'm, that was, I made, that was one of my I made favorite you a cocktail very... way back in the day. When yes, I was bartending at Speakeasy. It was dope. Uh, very few uh, bartenders could make it correctly, and it was my favorite drink. Uh, uh, James Adomian. I don't know if you know who that is. Oh, hell yeah. But, I love uh, him. Yeah. James turned me on to that. It was a cowboy. He used to call it the cowboy cocktail. He loved it. <laughs> and so uh, I very rarely ever had one, but uh, I do remember that. It was uh, uh, special. Very special, my friend. Hell yeah. Well, it was good talking to you. Hopefully Likewise. Uh, you'll be able to tour at some time in the next decade after all this. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I, so uh, heads up, by the way, I'm now I'm working on an album of music. Oh, awesome. So we we'll see what happens. About that. Maybe you can come on. Maybe you can come on again and we can talk about the music side of your life. Hell yeah. I would love that. It's uh, totally different from comedy. Uh, I'm such a dork. Uh, thanks again for having me, man. It, re- man, it means a lot. And be safe. Lot, Derek. Yeah, you yeah, too. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Peace. This has been a Comfort Monk production.